Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. And I'm Sarah Schaefer. And today we have a special guest with us. Uh, We're really excited about today's episode. We have with us Natasha Deegan, who is going to be speaking with us about the dynamics of the art market. Natasha is on the faculty at the Art Business Program at Sotheby's Institute here in New York. Um, Sotheby's Institute is... Uh, an autonomous entity that is uh, related to the auction house, but um, is a, a degree granting program that grants master's degrees um, for people who are interested in pursuing careers in the art market. Uh, she received her PhD from Cambridge and uh, is a journalist who has covered the art market. So she's a perfect person to talk to us about the art market and especially um, the way that the art market has been making news in the past few months. I also want to go ahead and plug that she has edited a volume. Natasha's book is called The Market on Whitechapel Gallery, published by MIT Press in their Documents of Contemporary Art series. So if you're interested in um, learning more about the art market, um, reading uh, uh, about the art market from different perspectives, we definitely encourage you to seek out this book. So Natasha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today and for sharing your insight with our listeners. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I mean, looking for research for different stories for the podcast, I go on my sort of standard list of art news resources. And so often it'll just be nine out of 10 articles are about, uh, you know, records being busted. And that's it. And as we were talking about before we started recording, and part of the reason we wanted to record this episode is to get into more of the details of that and what is significant about it rather than just statistics of what records are being broken, what artists mm. are, um, are uh, you know, doubling or tripling their value over the course of a few years and so forth. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I feel like a real beneficiary of this and that more and more people are interested in the art market and aware of even art in general through the lens of the market. Um, certainly, as you mentioned, not only do you see headline grabbing results about auctions, um, most recently this past November, Christie's Sotheby's once again holding record-breaking sales. Um, but also, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, there was Art Basel in Miami Beach. And, you know, even the Daily Mail will cover the fact that, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio was spotted with a bevy of models or Miley Cyrus re- performed at a party hosted by De- uh, Jeffrey Dykes. Or you have, um, you know, just more and more kind of celebrity fashion music uh, coverage of these events, um, and they really do become social phenomena way beyond just a kind of insider art world trade show type event. Um, I was talking to a colleague of mine, and I think we were in agreement that at this point, Art Basel has become so ubiquitous, particularly Art Basel in Miami Beach, the the um, edition of the art fair that's held in Miami every December has become just so ubiquitous that people think of it as almost like a Coachella. They don't know what Art Basel is. They don't even know where Basel is. Um, There's just this idea that it's this kind of fashion celebrity party scene that descends on Miami for a couple of days every year. 
You know, one thing we have to figure out, I, uh, I recently just watched the Simpsons episode uh, that's like the parody of Burning Man. Mm. We have to figure out if the Simpsons have done an Art Basel Miami Beach episode yet, because if not, <laughs> I feel like it's, it's in the works. It's imminent, definitely. They did make fun of Jasper Johns pretty in a pretty good way a number of years ago, so... All right, but now now we need to see if the the sort of the circus of the art market touches their radar, and then we'll know that we've really arrived here. Um, Natasha just mentioned the fact that um, in addition to Art Basel Miami Beach, we've also had some record-breaking auction activity in the past few months, and um, the big one that I think is sort of emblematic of this larger trend is the one on November 12th that was held by Christie's. It was a post-war and contemporary art evening auction, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that means, um, but it was the highest growing grossing auction in history. Uh, it brought in $852.9 million. Um, its original estimate was about $836 million, so it blew that out of the water. Um, and it was part of a series of auctions that together grossed $964.8 million. So this has led some people to speculate that you know the $1 billion auction is, is around the corner, maybe even as early as next spring. Um, of the 80 works that were offered for sale, only five of them failed to sell, which is a 94% um, sell rate, which is, as I understand it, pretty good. Um, it more than uh, doubled the um, uh, amount that its rival Sotheby's brought in at the contemporary art auction that Sotheby's held uh, the night before, actually. And so um, one of the things we want to talk about today is the difference between auction houses like Christie's and Sotheby's and what's going on with their rivalry. Um just to give you a sense of uh, the magnitude of this record-breaking auction, the previous record uh, for a single auction was $745 million, and that was set just back in May earlier this year at Christie's for um, another contemporary art auction. So uh, we're talking about you know uh, more than $100 million over the previous single auction record, and that magnitude um, you'll find uh, sort of replicated in all of the different statistics. Um, so, for example, there was a, a Francis Bacon painting, a, a seated figure from 1960, that was bought in 1996 for $2.5 million and was sold at this auction on November 12th for almost $45 million. And incidentally, that was actually expected to do much better. Really? $45 million. Even better than that. So 20 years, you're going from $2.5 million to $45 million, and that even was seen as a kind of disappointment. Amazing. Um, some of the records that were broken, I mean, a number of artists um, had uh, their auction records broken, so their personal records at auction. Um, uh, Arshil Gorky is one of those. He was an um, American post-war painter. A painting of his from 1945 called Child's Companions. Um, sold for $8.9 million. His previous record at auction was $6.8 million. Uh, Cy Twombly, uh, is, he had an untitled painting from 1970 that was sold. Uh, its low estimate was $35 million. It sold for almost $70 million, so double its low estimate. And his previous record at auction was $21.7 million set last year. So he goes from having his personal record of $21.7 million to selling a work for $70 million. Um, Ed Ruscha is another artist who broke uh, his own personal record at auction. His work, Smash, from 1963, uh, was estimated, the high estimate on that was uh, $20 million, sold to the um, mega dealer Larry Gagosian for $30.4 million. So that's $10 million over, or 150%, right, of what it was supposed to sell for. Ruscha's previous record was $6.99 million. So his previous record was about $7 million. This painting sells for $30.9 million. 4 million. 
Finally, I want to um, mention the artist Seth Price. Uh, the other artists we've been discussing are associated with the 1940s to the 1960s. So these are post-war artists. Seth Price is a contemporary artist. Uh, so he's a bit younger, uh, more of an emerging artist. His work, Vintage Bomber, from 2006, sold for $785,000. And that was more than 10 times the amount that it was estimated to sell for. And his previous record was $158,500. And that was... Um, set two years ago at Sotheby's. So these are really astronomical increases um, in terms of people breaking their previous records at auction. And and one of the things we uh, will also be talking about later today is the significance of this. And from a sort of economic standpoint, you know, is this market um, uh, sustainable? What is the what is the sort of immediate future for the art market, given that these records are being broken pretty much on a monthly basis now? Before we get into all that, we thought it would be really helpful since we have Natasha here and she's such an expert on the market to explain to us a little bit about what the art market is, how it works. Um, one of the things we wanted to start with was the distinction between a primary and a secondary market. So um, simply the distinction is that the primary market is the first point of sale. So if you're an artist and you are represented by a gallery, you have work straight from the studio, the first time the work is sold to a collector, to a buyer, that is the primary market. So if you think of galleries, if you think here in New York, um, contemporary art galleries, whether they be on the Upper East Side, Chelsea, the Lower East Side, many of those galleries are primary market galleries where they... Um, are responsible for liaising with artists and having the first showing of those artists' work. The secondary market is basically the resale market. So auction houses are a major part of the resale market, although galleries can also um, you know, focus on the work of artists who are deceased, for instance, or work with artist foundations and also be part of that secondary market. Um, and then there are dealers like the uh, mega dealer you mentioned, Larry Gagosian, who not only... Um, works with younger living artists, but also with artists' estates, and thus um, will be involved in both the primary and the secondary market. With m what many people actually don't realize about galleries is that galleries who deal in um, primary and secondary market activity, oftentimes the secondary market activity um, helps support or subsidize the gallery activities in the primary market. Because for the primary market, margins are much, much smaller for the gallery. And typically, if there is a sale, the um, proceeds from that sale will be split most of the time 50-50 between the artist and the gallery. Now, the more important the artist is, the more bargaining power and negotiating power that artist has, um, the higher the percentage that they'll get from the sale. So, you know, it's been rumored that for artists like, say, for instance, Jeff Koons, um, that percentage could be significantly higher than 50%. You talked a little bit about how particularly post-war contemporary artists have been seeing uh, you know, an astronomical increase in prices. And also overall, if you look at the market overall, uh, there's also been a very considerable increase in the market share for post-war contemporary art. So if you look at the um, art market's history over the last, say, 25 years or so, or even before that, if you think of the 1980s, the most um, highly prized category in the art market was um, Impressionist modern art. And really what we've seen in the last 10 years or so is an explosion of interest and uh, subsequently an explosion of prices um, in the post-war contemporary art sector. 
And this actually ties back interestingly to our first episode on the Detroit Institute of Arts, because Mm. um, one of the issues with the discussions for the sale of that collection was that the strengths in the collection are not things that are really going for the high prices on the market. All right. So so we've talked about um, post-war and and contemporary art now becoming really popular. We've talked about the secondary art market. So so really the engine driving all of this is the auction houses, right? It's these auction houses who are dealing in the secondary market in post-war and contemporary art. So the three major names that I can think of that I come across the most often are Sotheby's, Christie's, and Phillips. And I was wondering, Natasha, if you could help us understand a little bit more about the differences between these auction houses and also just in general how auction houses work. Well, um, sure. Uh, Christie's and Sotheby's are the kind of historic duopoly of the auction world, uh, both founded in the UK in the 18th century. So the third largest auction house in the world, interestingly, is a Chinese auction house, Polly, which was only founded in 2005. So you have number one, number two, founded in the 18th century with all of the advantages of a couple of centuries of experience and business getting. Um, And then you have the third largest, which is essentially a subsidiary of the Chinese army and uh, was found in 2005. So that's a really fascinating story, maybe for a different podcast. But getting back to the sort of subject of this podcast um, and to the two main auction houses, Christie's and Sotheby's, who operate internationally, hold sales in uh, primarily in New York, London and Hong Kong, um, you know, they share many similarities, as I said, they both date back to a particular historical moment. Um, Both originated in London. Um, Both operate at this point very internationally, Um, not only the kind of transatlantic access of the historical art market, New York, London, Paris, etc., but even in what we would call new and emerging markets. Um, You know, Hong Kong being an important center, but also Doha, Dubai, um, South America, etc., even though there are all these similarities, there are also some key differences. And I think the most important uh, distinction between the two is the fact that Sotheby's is a publicly listed company and thus um, is beholden to its shareholders and Christie's is privately owned um, by the Pinot family, famous art collectors um, who are involved in the luxury goods business. And I, th- I think that we're seeing the blurring of boundaries increasingly between luxury goods, fashion and art. And I think that Christie's has definitely been a part of that story. Um, but certainly the last few years, Christie's and Sotheby's have been on somewhat divergent paths. Uh, as you mentioned, Tina, the results for the Christie's sales have every cycle, it seems, uh, surpassed last results and broken records once again. Um, So as you said, this past sale at Christie's was $852.9 million, whereas um, Sotheby's was $343.6 million for the post-war contemporary sale. And so there was clearly a pretty significant disparity there. Um, And I think that has a lot to do with what's been going on in both companies. So um, there have been definitely some significant differences. Sotheby's has seen a uh, you know, tumultuous year, in part because the activist investor Daniel Loeb has been quite proactive about criticizing the actions of the Sotheby's CEO, Bill Ruprecht, and um, 
it was no surprise when about a month ago it was announced that Bill Ruprecht would be stepping down, at which point the stock price of Sotheby's went up. <laughs> um, meanwhile, Christie's, as a privately owned company, has had the ability to spend a lot, a lot, a lot of money on not only expanding the business internationally. I think we've seen Christie's uh, being very aggressive in emerging markets. So they're the first auction house to um, hold uh, the first, I should say, foreign auction house to hold um, their own sales in mainland China. This was a development in 2013 when finally the Chinese government allowed foreign auction houses to enter the mainland market. Um, so they've been very aggressive and spent a lot of money uh, marketing their brand and holding spectacular, very um, you know, opulent sales in, in Shanghai. Um, and we've also seen them being very aggressive in terms of expanding the online market for art, um, their online activities. Um, but again, this has required a lot of resources. And there was a very, very interesting article only in the last week in the Wall Street Journal where they talked about um, these sales that have been you know, grabbing headlines for the last couple of years. And particularly, they mentioned the sale from last November, November 2013, which uh, included star lots like the Bacon Triptych, which became the most expensive work of art ever sold. And they ever noted- Ever sold at auction. At auction. Right. <laughs> yes, we could talk about private, private sales, sales in a moment. But um, yeah, so the, this Wall Street Journal article noted that even though, you know, you see the headline, headline grabbing results, 700 million, 800 million, et cetera, that from the sale in November 2013, which totaled um, $691 million, supposedly, according to the Wall Street Journal, um, the Christie's only made $10 million in profit from that sale. So you see these headline grabbing results and... If you studied art history, like, you know, like we did, suddenly everyone's calling you up and saying, like, why don't you start, you know, working for an auction? Why don't you start working for an auction house? Why don't you start working as an art advisor? You could make millions. Your family, and, too, huh? Uh, <laughs> and the reality, I think, is quite different. The profit margins have been increasingly squeezed as Christie's has been very aggressive um, in the market in offering something called guarantees. And we can talk about that too, the way the guarantees maybe have distorted the results at auction. Um, but I think that on one hand, you have clearly a, a period of expansion, which is undeniable in the art market globally. So what's undeniable is more and more uh, extraordinarily wealthy people are emerging in places like China, throughout Asia, South America, um, the Middle East, for instance, who are interested in buying art. You also have the proliferation of museums worldwide. So you look at what's happening in the UAE and places like Abu Dhabi, but also in mainland China, where literally thousands of museums, both public and private, have been built. And there is certainly more and more demand. But then on the other hand, um, a lot of this is marketing too, and maybe even hype. And I think we've seen that with the Christie's sale that on one hand, you have the $852 million sale, maybe soon billion dollar sale, but how much money is actually being made in profit? Very little. So I would love if we, I mean, I think a lot of people are going to um, really have their minds blown by that. So if we could actually just back up a little bit and talk about how an auction works from start to finish and how the auction house makes money off of the auction. So first of all, where do the works come from and how do they get them for sale? Well, the auction houses have a real advantage over, say, individual galleries and in that they have an ex expansive Rolodex. So they, they, over the course of 
decades, if not, you know, two centuries of um, business experience, they've really um, scoped out where works of art have ended up. So um, even though now with, say, museum collections, you can Google and find out what the um, you know, what the acquisitions are for major museums, what's in their permanent collections. For private collections, obviously, that, that information is private and is not readily accessible. So the auction houses have a huge advantage in that they generally do know where works have ended up. Um, they have close connections with major collectors. And um, it's their business, really, to know when um, someone might be interested in selling works, when an important collector has died. Uh, you know, sadly, the art market um, lives off of what is called the three Ds, debt, uh, divorce, and death. So when somebody <laughs> is getting divorced, when somebody has died, the auction houses generally know about it. And there's lots of stories that may or may not be true about, you know, representatives from the auction house, you know, attending funerals and other <laughs> so it's like New York real estate yeah it's not dissimilar and in fact that could be another podcast this relationship between art and real estate because I think it's no coincidence that a lot of the people that are very active in the art market are also real estate moguls so there's clearly a connection there but um the auction houses, as I said, uh, find the works from the three days or whatever. Um, and then at that point, the when the auction houses know that somebody is interested in consigning works, typically they may approach both auction houses. And oftentimes there is a kind of bidding war that takes place. And this is where the issue of guarantees oftentimes comes in. And basically what um, that means is that the auction house is a way to win business, will tell the consigner that they are guaranteeing basically that that particular work will not sell for anything less than X amount. And the way that they're able to offer these guarantees is either by providing the financing for that work themselves. So if the work sell, if there's not enough interest to reach, say that, let's say the guarantee is $1 million, if there's not enough interest to, um, if there's not enough bidding activity to meet that $1 million guarantee, then effectively the auction house is buying the work. The auction house now owns that work. And then they could go on and try and sell it through private sales, for instance. Um, but increasingly, a lot of these guarantees are actually provided by third parties. And these are independent, oftentimes art collectors, actually, that are involved in this, who agree to basically provide the money to um, underwrite the sale, right? So that if the work doesn't sell for $1 million, this third party um, uh, entity, collector, whatever, ends up buying the work. And um, that's very advantageous, particularly when this third party is a collector because they are given um, certain benefits. So the way the auction house makes money is that um, they get a buyer's premium. So if you buy a work, you a certain percentage of the sale um, goes to the auction house. And there's also the seller's commission. So the consigner also gives a certain percentage to the auction house. But in order to lure business from their competitor, uh, you know, if it's Christie's in order to uh, win business over Sotheby's or vice versa, they um, have started to cut into those uh, commission amounts, right? So either they're making less on the, on the buyer's premium end or on the seller's commission. And that's part of the reason why profit margins have really, really been squeezed over the last couple of years. But to get back to what... Um, to get back to how an auction is 
organized or structured. So you have uh, the business getting part of it where uh, the auction houses both have a real incentive to try and get the best work possible to feature in their sale. And um, then they kind of slot in that work to their calendar. So there are different um, different times of year in which sales take place depending on the category. So November is when in New York we see the major post-war contemporary sales. There'll be another cycle for the Christie's and Sotheby's post-war and contemporary sales in May. And now not only is there this um, calendar that runs according to the months, but there's also a distinction between uh, the time of day of a sale, right? So there's the day sales and then the evening sales. So what's the difference between those? So there's absolutely a distinction between the day sale and the evening sale. Um, In the post-war period, actually, the head of Sotheby's in the late 1950s debuted the idea of the evening sale as a kind of gala event and famously um, employed PR firms, um, required a dress code, so you had to wear evening dress, even invited celebrities to these events in order to attract media attention and to make the sales seemingly more exclusive. That's a feature of the evening sale that continues to this day. So whereas the day sales tend to be lower price lots, um, for post-war and contemporary, it's more of the contemporary work. So younger artists on the whole, artists who have been less, that are maybe more untested in terms of the market, um, will be in the, in the day sales. So really, the major difference is that of a price point. So lower price lots will end up in the day sales, and the really um, exclusive uh, top price works will end up in the evening sale. And the other major difference is whereas the day sale will go on for hours and hours, they may have hundreds of works, the evening sale is generally smaller, more exclusive. And that's also something that the auction houses use to get business. You know, your work will be in the evening sale, you'll get a two-page spread, maybe it will be on the cover of the catalog, you know, so those are things that they can offer collectors to incentivize them going with one auction house over another. Again, just to sort of uh, go back and and clarify uh, for our listeners um, some of the mechanics of this, uh, of the whole auction house process. how does bidding actually work? So, so, so let's say we're at a at an evening sale at a place like Christie's. You know, it's this gala environment. They've got celebrities in the house. Um, how does one actually bid on and win a work of art? Please tell me it's like a livestock auction with an auctioneer speaking really quickly. In a way, there are definitely some parallels, and uh, some auctioneers are known for their kind of lively personas. Maybe not unlike cattle auctions or any other type of auction for that matter. But um, no, the way that bidding works, and, and now it's been a little bit more complicated because there are many ways that you can bid, right? You could be physically in the room holding up a paddle, as you've seen in many Hollywood movies, uh, where someone itches their nose and inadvertently buys you know, a Monet or something. Um, that's still uh, the way a lot of people buy, and particularly the evening sales. I think you see a lot more people in the room who want to be in the room, also because it's great theater. Um, but you can also bid over the phone, and increasingly people are bidding online. So even though there might be some technological issues that could come up, it makes sense that as buyers or collectors become more and more international, that um, these other means of bidding are becoming more popular. And so and the people who are bidding online or the people who are bidding by phone, they're represented in the auction room by... They don't have to be represented by anyone in the auction room, but the person taking the bid is going to be an employee of the auction house. The other way that sometimes people bid is by having a dealer that they work with bid on their behalf. And that's why you'll see, for instance, the last Christie's sale, Larry Gagosian bought a number of pieces, most likely on behalf of collectors that he works with. 
And so those people get to then remain anonymous. Right. That's the idea. Um, But then again, some collectors revel in the opportunity to let everyone know that they're purchasing these incredibly expensive works of art. If you look at the internationalization of the art market and as more and more collectors come from places like Russia or China and don't want their governments or others to know maybe, you know, quite extensive how extensive their assets are. There's a push for anonymity, and this is also part of the reason why private sales have become increasingly important for the auction houses. So, so what's a private sale? So a private sale is um, very similar to the type of sale that would take place at a gallery. Um, basically, it's the auction house acts as the dealer, and they have that massive Rolodex, so they know the few people in the world who may want to buy a Gustav Klimt or a Cezanne or a Warhol, and they can directly contact those few people and sell the work um, privately, which offers the advantages of one, anonymity. So nobody knows that if you are you know, under some distress and you need to liquidate some of your assets, nobody has to know that you've sold your art collection, for instance. But also it offers the advantage of, you know, you don't have to wait for November. You don't have to wait for May. You need your cash quickly. You sell the work via private sale. The auction house has a pretty good idea of who the people are in the world who might be interested in this work, and it happens quickly and quietly. We've already touched on the ways that what's going on in the art market um, impacts not only other sectors of the art world, but also um, what's going on um, sort of in, in the world more broadly, right? So, for example, the relationship between the globalization of the financial markets with, you know, you talked about the emerging markets in South America and in China um, and other parts of Asia. What are some of the issues about the relationship between the art market and the financial markets that should make people who are outside of the art market sort of sit up and pay attention to what's going on in the art market today? So one issue, I think, is this awareness of the way that the art market is reflective of and also has a kind of symbiotic relationship with um, income inequality. And so the artist Andrea Frazier um, wrote an essay for the 2011 Whitney Biennial, which is available online as a PDF, and you may want to check it out, um, called The 1% Say Moi and basically is about the way that the art market benefits from growing income inequality, particularly the growth of not even the 1%, but the 0.01% in the United States in particular. These are the same people that are very active collectors, hedge fund managers who have uh, you know, extraordinarily massive art collections, who sit on museum boards, um, who are involved in all sorts of things that Andrew Fraser, I think, very rightly points out that if artists kind of were aware of where their works were ending up, maybe they wouldn't want to be so complicit in the system. And yet, um, because artists need money and uh, the, these extraordinarily wealthy individuals are interested in being perceived as philanthropists or cultured individuals that are invested in art, the relationship continues. And um, so I think that's something that uh, a lot of uh, not only art world observers, but economists have become interested in this uh, this relationship between increasing income inequality and, you know, increasing um, record breaking sales at auction houses or elsewhere. So and, and artists, of course, are part of this equation that, like, you know, we spend so much time talking about the auction houses and and the collectors who, um, you know, move their assets through those auction houses. But um, where where do artists fit into all of this? 
That's a really interesting question. Some artists embrace the market and even use it as a medium for their practice. Other artists have tried to deride, criticize, bypass the market through their art by creating work that's either ephemeral or digital or unmarketable um, or immaterial. Um, but I think that it is an interesting thing. I have a statistic here about um, auction sales, which again are not indicative of the overall art market. Uh, actually, the divide between gallery sales and auction sales are typically about 50-50. So hmm. one thing to note is that auction sales are public, so we can talk about the results, whereas gallery sales are private, so it's harder to know what's going on um, in terms of uh, gallery sales. But you know, I think that this is an interesting statistic that even though we hear about these headline grabbing results and by volume they uh, sorry by value they constitute a very high percentage of auction sales the vast majority of sales are actually in the 50,000 um, euro and under bracket so um, still you know if you think of the vast majority of artists are not selling at these evening sales at auction the vast majority of artists are not selling through these mega galleries or through auction houses but are really oftentimes scraping by um, as evidenced by the article that uh, was posted that you posted Tina by um, Bill Pajada that talks about how you know, only 10% of art school graduates can actually make a living through their art, which I think is pretty startling, but also maybe not surprising if you think of the stereotype of the kind of starving artist that still exists, despite the existence of Jeff, the Jeff Koons of the world. Uh, still, most artists are really struggling to get by and are supplementing their income through other types of work. Yeah, in December, Jerry Salt actually, you know, he always likes to post sort of um, inflammatory things. And, and he had his article about, you know, the value of, of, an, of an MFA and overthinking, you know, right. and, and rethinking that model, because not only are only 10% of artists able to actually earn a living as an artist, but now just like lawyers and, and doctors, they're taking out, you know, $100,000 of loans right. in order to even get a crack at that. So, right. um, you know, the system does def definitely seem sort of rigged in a way um, to uh, the disadvantage of artists. And so um, we were talking earlier about um, the fact that now Congress is getting into this. Um, yeah, if you want to yeah. talk about the bill. Yeah, so now there's a bill under consideration that would provide for artist resale rights, which means that if a work is sold at auction, and I think the bill specifies that the work has to sell for over $5,000 to qualify, but if it were to sell for over $5,000, then the artist would receive percent of all their resales, um, which I think is, is an attempt anyway to address this issue. Um, and interestingly, too, I think now is maybe a good moment, if not for legislation, then for something to take place that would address um, the kind of ec economics of being an artist. And I think you have in the last year, particularly with the, um, you know, feverish pi fev fevered pitch of the contemporary art market, you have artists like um, Wade Guyton, who famously in protest of uh, Christie's sale, of course, um, in, I think this was in May 2014, a work of his was going to be sold and um, it was a uh, digital print on linen work from 2005. And so as a way to kind of undermine his own market and how overheated it had become, he actually printed more works from the same 2005 file and took a Instagram, you know, Instagrammed a photo of the works on his studio floor as a kind of way to... Um, you know, to decrease the rarity of that 2005 work and thus to decrease its value. Um, so I think that there is more awareness, particularly um, by artists, 
um, and maybe a little bit more resentment about the way that the market has become um, ever more prominent and, um, you know, the way that the market distorts values. And um, so I think that the legislation is part of this, that there is more interest in um, establishing resale rights. But also, interestingly, there's a show right up, up right now in New York through January um, at Essex Street Gallery in the Lower East Side, which is called The Contract. And it's attempt to kind of revive the Prejansky contract from 1971, which was a, a contract that um, was developed for artists to use at the point of sale to um, not only um, stipulate that they would receive resale rights for any future sales, but also allowed for artists to have some control over reproduction and exhibition rights. So I think that there is a kind of resurgence of interest in some of these ideas that maybe first became uh, mainstream in the 1970s, which is quite interesting. I'm just kind of curious on that note where the lobbying is coming from for this type of legislation. There's been some interest in artist resale rights in part because um, California actually did pass a law to allow for artist resale rights. And there have been artist resale rights in California, and that has actually been challenged in court. Um, but artists, unsurprisingly, um, are major proponents of this type of legislation. Um, and artist resale rights do exist in the EU and in the UK. So there is definitely a kind of precedent for this. Yeah. Some would argue, though, that by legislating it, by if, if this were if this bill were to pass, that um, in order to collect and then to distribute the, um, you know, the the um, the royalties from the sale, that there would have to be an agency um, which you know, if you look to the UK, for instance, has proven to be fairly bureaucratic and expensive. Mm -hmm. And that's why this also this renewed interest in something like the Prujansky contract is an alternative to legislation, mm -hmm. where actually, because contemporary post-war contemporary art is so important in the art market, and artists maybe now more so than ever do have power in this market. If you think about the way that the primary market and the secondary market differ, well, in the primary market, actually, artists have a lot of power. If you think of the way that access has become almost a commodity and the way that um, now a lot of galleries have waiting lists for their artists' work. Um, and, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize, that if an artist produces work for a show, you know, the work is not necessarily sold to the collector or the buyer with the most money. Um, that galleries, because they work directly with the artists, have a real interest in controlling the artist market and to make sure that prices don't go up too quickly. Mm -hmm. So prices are very tightly controlled and they would rather place a work for less money with a collector that they perceive to be more responsible than just to place the work with the highest bidder. Obviously, that is what happens in the auction market. But So I actually have a question and also a comment. So one is, I mean, can you explain why it would be a problem that the price of a young emerging artist would go up too quickly? Like you would think that that would be a great thing. Yeah, I mean, well, for the gallery, you would think that, you know, these galleries that are barely getting by, you would think that they'd be happy to make the short term profit. But really, I think the gallery sees their role, a responsible gallery sees their role as um, cultivating not only a long term relationship with the artist, but also to cultivate a career. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of cautionary tales about artists who suddenly became very popular in the market. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that now. Artists, very young artists, artists who are in their 20s, who have done uh, spectacularly well and gotten a lot of attention um, and then attracted more speculative buyers um, and 
we've seen this with artists like Oscar Murillo or Lucian Smith, whose prices have, you know, gone up by, you know, gone up multiple times in the course of six months or a year at auction. Um, and how now a lot of these artists really um, have been seen as, because their markets are perceived to be so speculative, they're seen as artists who are maybe market friendly, commercial, not that serious, haven't been um you know critically acclaimed but have this kind of market appeal and market art it's called as right, opposed to market sort of art contemporary or art. flip art it's yeah. been called um and so yeah i think ultimately that is very problematic for artists right that basically there's a i mean again very similar to sort of you know real estate right that if 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 you have a a, a high price and then suddenly you see a contraction in that price that that will scare people. Right. Um, well, this is also the reason. So galleries keep prices low because f- via the gallery, prices can never go down. Mm-hmm. At auction, prices can fluctuate up and down. But galleries really want to control the prices and they never want to have to lower prices. So they'd mm-hmm. rather keep prices at a kind of steady level where maybe there'd be an increase if suddenly a work got acquired by a major museum collection or suddenly there was a lot of... Um, you know, critical writing on that artist's work. Maybe there'd be an, an incremental increase, but otherwise galleries really tightly control the prices of their artists. And thus what's been happening, and this is part of the reason why you do have this market art or flip art type phenomenon, is you have a massive disparity between prices on the primary market and prices on the secondary market. Mm-hmm. So these collectors, some of whom are not really collectors or speculators, they can't get access to the work through the primary market. So they have to buy at auction. And that's why you have, say, an artist whose work might may sell at their gallery for $20,000, $30,000, suddenly being sold at auction for $100,000, $150,000, because these um, more speculative buyers can't get access to the work through the primary market. We've talked about the role of the auction houses. We've talked a little bit about the sort of marginalized and precarious role of the artists. But now the other part of the equation is the buyers. Right. Um, And, you know, we finally sort of, um, you know, hit the elephant in the room, which is that Mm -hmm. People are buying art speculatively, which, again, as, as a historian of the market, I'm really interested to hear you talk yeah, about. Yeah, um, I mean, to be honest, I don't think that that's anything particularly new. And actually, the New York Times did an article where they worked with um, an art market kind of database service. And they saw that, um, because I think there is this perception that there's a lot of work that's being flipped and people are holding on to work for shorter and shorter periods of time because it's just a commodity. So, you know, if I can make money by selling it in six months, then I'll do that. Um, but actually what they found I thought was quite interesting. They looked at sales of post-war and contemporary art in 2013 um, actually specifically works of post-war and contemporary art that was resold in 2013. And what they found was that the work was held for an average of 3.1 years, which is very short. It's a very short time frame. But then they looked historically and they found that work of post-war contemporary art that was resold in 1995 was was held on to for an average of 3.6 3.6 years. So is there really, I mean, yes, it is more speculative, but it is, is it significantly more speculative than um, the market was in 1995? Not really. Um, I think there's always been an element of speculation. If you think of the 1980s, artists like Julian Schnabel or the kind of, um, you know, neo-expressionism artists from the 1980s, there's a lot of speculation in their, in those markets. Um, you know, famously Sandra Chia, the artist who was bought up in bulk by Charles Saatchi, then Sa- Charles Saatchi basically sold off um, his works by Chia and crashed Chia's market. That kind of thing has been going on, certainly at the very least since the 1980s. Um, and people have also been making 
a lot of money and seeing the speculative potential in contemporary art for a long time. The first dedicated sale to contemporary art at auction was the sale of the collection of Robert and Ethel Skull, very famous collectors, first of abstract expressionism, then mainly pop art and became very famous as collectors of pop art in the 1960s. And they had a divorce you know, one of the D's, and held a sale of their collection um, at Sotheby's in New York in um, 1973. And at that sale, um, famously, Rauschenberg came up to Skull and supposedly punched him, although there is a video of this and it is a lot more friendly than um, the myth would have you believe. But, you know, said supposedly um, from accounts at the time, he said something to Robert Skull, like, I've been working my ass off just so that you could make this profit. And it was true that the work sold at that auction, this first auction dedicated to contemporary art, to the work of living artists, which at that point was very radical. This was a very untested market category at the time. Um, those works had been bought for, you know, $500, $1,000, and were suddenly being sold for over $100,000 in 1973. And not so, incidentally. I mean, Rauschenberg was one of the people who actually spearheaded the mm. idea of artist resale rights. Right? Absolutely. Of, of trying to come up with a, yeah, a contract that, that artists would universally In the use. aftermath of this sale. Yeah, so. Um, so given the fact that you think this kind of speculation has been um, part of the art market for at least the past two decades, if not more, um, are you pretty sanguine on the future of the market? Or are you one of those people who, um, you know, is a chicken little and thinks the sky is falling and this is a bubble <laughs> market and we should all, you know, be terrified of what's um, going to happen well, in the I next 10 years? Well, I think the thing about the art market is that it's really comprised of different markets, right? So if we look at post-war contemporary, it's very different from the market for old masters painting, which is very different from the market for Chinese antiquities. I think post-war contemporary, there is, I think, increasingly consensus particularly among economists and other kind of art market observers, that maybe this market has some characteristics of a bubble market. Um, the price increases that you described early on in the podcast are probably unsustainable. If you think of um, an artist's record not only being exceeded within six months, but doubled, tripled, quadrupled, those are um, increases that are probably not that sustainable. Interestingly, there's also something called the masterpiece effect, which is that there's a widespread notion that if you buy at the top end of the market, you buy masterpieces, then you know those are the works that are going to appreciate the most in value. Actually, economists have proven this to be false. Buying at the very top end of the market is actually not where you'll see, um, there's not a lot of room to grow. So, um, and that's, I think, also part of the reason why we see more and more interest in, from a speculative um, perspective uh, in contemporary art of the work of very young emerging artists. There's not a lot of room to grow when a work sells for $70 million or $100 million. And that's part of the reason why the um, impressionist market, if you think of the 1980s, that market has never quite recovered from the crash in 1989, 1990. Um, so, you know, I think that we will see a contraction. This would be my prophecy, not, not being a clairvoyant, but this would be my prophecy is that there probably will be some contraction in post-war contemporary at the top end of the market. Will we see the $1 billion auction anytime soon? Probably not, especially now that there is some indication that the auction houses are kind of pulling back from this hyper-competitive um, cycle where they were willing to forego profit for the sake of headlines. Um, but overall, I would say the market is growing. That's 
I would say, undisputable. That if you look at China, if you look at what's happening in a lot of emerging markets, you also look at the way that the online market is starting to capture new collectors. People that are interested in buying luxury goods are now starting to buy art increasingly. Um, you have the blurring of boundaries between art and fashion. You have the blurring of boundaries between art and luxury goods. I think that this is part of a, of a much broader trend, which means that more and more people are going to be interested in consuming art, whether as a visitor to a museum or as a buyer at an art fair. So overall, not such a gloomy picture, but in terms of whether these prices that we discussed, whether this is sustainable, that I would be a little bit more dubious about. Well, you may not be a clairvoyant, but you're a very smart journalist and a, and a historian, and I think that that makes you um, eminently qualified oh, to offer you. a prognosis of what's going to what's going to happen. Well, who knows? Maybe I'll be maybe I'll be proven wrong, and there will be the one billion dollar sale up in this upcoming May. You never know. So thank you again, Natasha, for joining us. It was a really great uh, contribution to our discussions. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on the internet at arthistory.today. Um, you can also find us on Facebook uh, at facebook.com slash arthistorytoday and on Twitter. And our Twitter handle is arthisttoday. That's A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y. Arthistory.